0: Today on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, in your week in sports cars, listener Q&A episode, you know who we got? Oh man, it took months of negotiations. Can't believe how much he charges these days. It's Graham Goodwin, DailySportsCar.com editor, a voice and a face you've also likely heard on a variety of fine European sports car championships. How are you being paid by the second for your amazing talents?
1: so I'll speak very slowly I'm absolutely fine of course it's uh darkness has fallen here on the outskirts of London and my well at least my planned travels done for the year Uh, a few days in Italy this week uh, for some features that'll be coming up on Daily Sports Car uh, next week and uh, a day at United Autosports which was great fun looking at their new facility very impressive that was too Uh, again more to come I hope a little bit for Racer as well on that one um all good stuff, mate. It's um, it's sort of the end of the season. It's it's kind of, this bizarre year is almost at a close.
0: Did you get a look at the uh, new McLaren hypercar at United Autosports, or are we not supposed to talk about that?
1: We can't talk about it, mate. And by the way, you said singular hypercar.
0: Oh, I, yes, I apologize. Is it strange that it, it's Aston Martin Valkyries? Nah, anyways, we'll just, uh, we'll leave that as <laughs> is. We should say... Didn't expect a, to
1: be pink either.
0: A grand thank you to the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, Bell Racing Helmets USA, and the fine competition and road car tire manufacturing company known as Cooper Tires from Ohio in America. They're American, which means it's good. So, all right, Graham Goodwin, you are the official selector of the three or four categories we tend to flirt with. On a weekly basis, tell us where we are starting, my man
1: well, I think should we switch it about a bit and start this week with Wecasms Elms and aCO are uh, well it's not it's shorthand, isn't it for ACO rules racing, which generally means that it's me doing the, the listening, you doing the initial talking, and me for the most part but not exclusively doing the answering.
0: I talk. Then shut up. Then you talk. I think that's the thing folks uh, have told us they love. We're going to kick off WEC, Aslam, Elms, ACO, WC, Asian Le Mans Series, European Le Mans Series, and whatever the heck an ACO is, Tim Fulbrook, Hey, Tim, not sure I recall reading one of your questions before. So if not, uh, thanks for sending this in. First time, hopefully long time. He asks, how much flexibility, Graham, is there within the hypercar powertrain rules? And will they shift? Do you expect? With new fuels, it says, hashtag me personally, I'd love to see a brand like Audi return with a powertrain with, say, a 70-30 electric combustion split as part of the beloved e-tron badge. So it's a great one, Graham, right? How much current flexibility and how much, uh, I guess, variance or options do you see if the uh, automotive world continues to go away from blowing up fuels made out of dinosaurs and other things?
1: Well, um, hi Tim the, the answer is there is more flexibility For Le Mans hypercar As it currently is Than there is for LMDH in the future uh, The principal difference Is going to be that The uh, manufacturers or the teams That choose to go to the hypercar route If they choose to be A hybrid powertrain And they don't have to So for instance, Jim uh SCG 007 is not hybrid uh, powertrain if they choose to go uh, with a hybrid powertrain they can have their own storage medium battery and their own um, in-house developed or externally developed uh, curve system so the the answer there is what it gives them is less to do with particularly the mix and it's more to do with the freedom to actually use something other than the spec system that's going to be defined by the LMDH regulations. That's what's attracted Peugeot to that formula. That's what we seem to be kind of directing our attentions towards Ferrari, that if they do come, that it's more likely to be a hypercar for that reason, uh, and for the reason that you can choose your own chassis, by the way, uh, than it is, that than there would be to go LMDH, where they've got to use one of the four, future LMP2 chassis, and a spec hybrid system. That's the storage and delivery mechanism. Um, So the hypercar, freedom for engine, whatever you like, with the exception, I'm pretty certain, I seem to recall, no diesel uh, for that. Um, But as for future fuels, well, the future-proofing, at least the LMDH regulations, this much has been made clear that there will be space left um, you know, in, 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 with that chassis for the potential um, to future-proof those those cars. So you would expect, if anybody's got that in mind, uh, that they'll build that into the chassis design we see from 2021, 2022 and onwards. So the answer is, there's a fair amount of flexibility in what you can do with powertrain for hypercar. Um, in terms of the overall power output, that is firmly capped as part of the balanced performance process, uh, because these cars will, of course, be balanced in the future against LMDH. It's as good as it gets at the moment until we start to see uh, a few more details of exactly what the solutions are that the various manufacturers and car builders will be coming up with.
0: Shuffle on to Daniel Summersgill. Never heard of him. Never heard of him. And he's got two in a row to pose, so... That's very kind Ooh. of you and efficient, Daniel. You're drafting yourself with your own question. Sure. says, uh, hey, I think it's a big mistake not to give the LMP2 Pro-Am class winners an auto entry for Le Mans in the ELMS in 2021. And I can't see why anyone would want to enter the class if there's no incentive for the AMs to enter it other than to win a subclass, which may only feature two or three
1: cars. Uh, I tend to agree with you, Daniel, is the honest answer. I actually had this conversation with a senior member of the LMEM staff in Bahrain, and the answer I was given was a bit kind of cart before the horse, which was having taken away that um, auto-entry for LMP2M in the Asian Le Mans series, because of low low entry numbers the previous year, it would have been counterintuitive to do that for LMS. But but things have changed Um, with the LMP2M class in uh, in Asia, it was with the old cars, now it isn't. Um, I also think it's a bit strange to call it LMP2 Pro Am. LMP2, by its very nature, is Pro Am. Um, it's certainly not Pro Pro. So I think it's a mistake. Uh, the conversations I've had with a couple of prospective entrants certainly seem to agree with that premise. Will they get just two or three? At the moment, there is two or three uh, bronze drivers in the European Le Mans series. We're tracking at the moment a marginal increase in that. There's a couple of entries we're not really sure what they're going to emerge like. I can tell you there are a couple of surprise entries to come um, that uh, are not being talked about quite yet. Um, so there is, there is more to come. Um, but yes, I think it's a mistake. Um, why are they doing that? I think they're gathering back a little bit of control for the uh, elective entries that the the um, the invitation committee, the selection committee of the ACO uh, decides on for the Le Mans 24 Hours, um, they've already, remember, introduced this new system as of the end of this the, this current season, which means that for the European Le Mans Series and the Asia Le Mans Series, the number of LMP2 and GTE or GT3 in the case of Asia. Um, auto entries is defined by the number of full season entries in the class. So it's a sliding scale, depends on the class. If you get over number A, uh, oh, sorry, if you get up to you know um, yardstick A, it's one entry. If you get over that but up to yardstick B, it's two entries. If you get over yardstick B, it's three entries. Um, so there's a degree more fairness about that. But yes, I think if you're going to change the goalposts, There probably needs to be a bit more of an incentive than they've currently given the lmp 2 AM, which is what I'm going to keep calling it, uh, class. And I agree with you, Daniel Summerskill.
0: We are moving on to Daniel's second question. Resubmission again. So that would imply we're at at least our third time, right? Outrageous. Resubmission plus the word again. We are just swarthy bastards, but we own this. Uh, With the LMP1 era now over, what was your favorite LMP1 race or moment, Graham? Daniel adds, hashtag me personally, Le Mans 2010, Peugeot versus Audi. Peugeot were firm favorites before the race, but everyone ran into trouble. The shot of Hugh Deschonack in the garage when his car retired in complete despair was a perfect example of the emotion the 24 hours of Le Mans provides. Provided every single year.
1: Uh I think you've you've hit one of the classics right there. This was the year where one bullet left in the Audi gun. And um well Peugeot sort of blew it, didn't they? This was the uh the year when they changed to and correct me if I'm wrong here, MP, Titanium conrods.
0: Yes, as um, told by uh Sebastian Bourdais in our yeah. LMP one Peugeot uh, program Memories podcast.
1: Absolutely. And um, and that had rather dramatic uh, impact on three of the four cars entered, including, as you quite rightly say, the Orica entered uh, car and, and Audi coming through. To look at other moments, um, there was another Hugh Schonack moment. It's, I think, a race you were at as well, MP. That was Sebring um, with the first year of the new car for Peugeot. Uh, they ran the new cars at Sebring. Hugh Schonack's Orica team ran the old V12-engine car, and for a variety of reasons, he won. And the, again, the emotion on Hugh's face just made that event. be saw it on TV, David Lord, my friend and partner was there to, um, to capture that for, uh, the stills cameras. Uh, that was another fantastic, uh, moment beyond that.
0: We love us racing, big stickers. Remember, on, uh, you, on you, you, car. You,
1: you know what? Yes, indeed it did. Um, Beyond that, there was that glorious period of time where they just got equivalent technology right, and we had, I'd suggest, a better part of two seasons of that with Toyota, with um, Porsche, and with Audi, and in a variety of different ways, that served up, at times, two times two cars, and sometimes Uh, Three times two car battles in LMP1, which will live with me for an awfully long time. Well, remember we had one particularly fantastic race at Silverstone. uh, That was Porsche uh, versus Audi. Nürburgring as well served up an absolute corker. That period of time, um, it's going to be when I stop doing what I currently do for a living. One of the things I look back on very fondly indeed is one of the, the, the glorious albeit short-lived eras, of the racing that I covered, you know, as, as a career. They're the ones, without a shadow of doubt, there have been more. Uh, there was a Le Mans series race at Silverstone in terrible conditions. It was Alan McNish in the Orica, another Orica, run Audi, um, being chased down by, I think, Nick Manassian in the creation. Um, and it looked like the creation might make it and win that race. Uh, ultimately, the wee Scotsman managed to hold off the wee Frenchman, but that was a cracking race in very marginal conditions that anybody, that again, that was there or that saw it will remember that very fondly indeed. But they're just a few of, you know, what was a decade and a half of, you know, sometimes lean and fallow years, but other times just privateers and factories just just. Juking it out. I mean, as, as I recall, MP, you might remember one or two of these, some of the American Le Mans series races with Dyson Racing, or, or for that matter, panels around the streets of Washington, D.C., you know, juking it out with the bigger boys and coming out on the other occasion, you know, with the upper hand. They were the glory years as well, as far as I can see.
0: So many of my favorite P1 memories involve a significant fight back one that I've written about ad nauseum and mentioned here a few times. One of the high water marks, I would say, Daniel, that would be Petit Le Mans 2008. A, uh, a certain McNish incident yet again uh, of fighting back to beat uh, Peugeot after crashing on uh, uh, the, I don't even know what to call it, the uh, the Four formation lap. lap. Yeah, yeah. Um, that stands as just an all-time classic performance there. Uh same year, two thousand eight at Le Mans, Tom Christensen's drive back, uh what, starting around one AM, two AM till three, four, five in the rain. Peugeot had uh huh, Peugeot had showed its its real strength and it took lots of rain and a miraculous dane uh in that open top Audi. Uh, R ten, His drive there, that was phenomenal. And then another, I believe, nighttime and possibly, if I recall correctly, rain episode yet again, 2015, a certain Nicholas Tandy. Uh, will there ever be a finer stint produced by Nick? I don't know. But, yeah, just those are the things that jump out to me from P1 of the, wow, uh the class was structured in such a way the rules were structured where by and large there was enough variance in vehicular technology allowed to exist. Things weren't so clamped down through balance of performance using equivalency of technology, which didn't always equivalent um, Pretty phenomenal stuff that we saw from time to time uh let's see where are we going next Graham we're going to George Buter says. With the power reduction in LMP2, do you see the other chassis manufacturers other than Oreca, you see their performance window, who knows, maybe get bigger. Uh, so is there a greater chance of them running as well in the Asian Lamas series and
1: ELMS? Well, I think it's particularly LMS that we're talking about uh, there. The answer is no, I don't. I think there's a particular reason for that. We're shifting, of course, not just to reduce power, but to a... Single tyre manufacturer, and you know, I was at the first of those tests. It was a Portimao, they moved on to uh, Motorland in Aragon, in Spain. And it is fair to say that there were a fair number of Oricas who voted in that test, and there were no other, no other chassis at all. We know that uh, Inter Europol are moving on from their Ligiers to an Orica in the WC this coming season. We know that uh, Settler Racing, more or less last. Team standing with the Delara chassis, they will have the swan song for that car at uh, Rolex 24 at Daytona. That car will then be parked. Yes, there's the odd one or two others. Your International with a Ligier. We had the announcement just yesterday about uh, Eurasia coming to do Rolex 24, they hope. And beyond that, they hope for more in IMSA with one of their two Ligiers. Is we may there a the
0: potential limit, Graham, on... P two teams using your in there their, in their <laughs> That's
1: name three, up. isn't it? There you go. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I think the answer is as long as they're not British teams, uh, because obviously we've Brexited. Uh, but uh, the re- the re- the rest of it, it does seem to be, uh, you know, a yeah, uh, all too prevalent four letter uh, adjunct to, to whatever else they want to actually be promoting, doesn't it? But uh, with, oddly enough, but uh, Eurasia not being based in Europe but being based in the Philippines. But I think the answer here is I think the ult- the ultimately competitive days of the other chassis are done um, principally because the tyre development has now been done around the Orica. And frankly, the vast majority of the, the teams that have stayed around having um, not found form with their Ligier or Dallara package have moved on to Orica's, well, United Autosports being a great example of that. They, one of the few teams to win with the the uh, Ligier uh, chassis, and they've firmly moved on to Orica. Uh, Again, more news about that next week. But the um, it, it's it's a sadness to me. I think, you know, variety has always been part of why a lot of us love prototype racing, and combination of regulation and circumstances, I think, conspired to bring this forward as if not a purely, then a principally orica only class. And I think that's to be regretted. And I think it it should be something that the the lessons should be learned here, that the process did not serve variety well. Um, There were regulations that offered the opportunity to level the playing field. They weren't um, put into action in the way that made a meaningful difference And what ultimately that means in a series, sorry, in a formula where I hear proud words being used about cost capping. Well, cost capping is all very well, but if you've bought a car or two cars that you effectively have to park after two seasons because they're in no way competitive, that sort of seems counterintuitive in a situation where you won't make a decision uh, to allow teams to to spend two, three, five, ten thousand euros but you've effectively counted out their investment in six figure euro chassis. Um, that's something where we need to learn those lessons because, let's be blunt, the motorsport world, the economies of scale, the economy in general, and finances are somewhat less resilient than they were back in 2017.
0: Cost capping could lead to knee capping today nah. on the weekend sports cars. Uh, We are going, Graham, to a name you've already mentioned, one who uh, we kind of like this chap, a very American fellow. Jonathan Mm -hmm. Green asks, do we have an idea of what Jim Glickenhaus's driver lineup might be next year? Says, I'm hoping for a few Americans, but that's just hashtag me personally.
1: Well, Jim's certainly a very proud American, very proud that his road cars in the future will all be built stateside. Uh, The race cars, not so. They're built in Italy. Um, But the answer, the the swift answer is no. I don't have an idea. That's not been yet shared with us. I'm sure that's the kind of thing that will start to emerge uh, pretty shortly.
0: Brazilian Um, motors from Pippo Durrani also. We failed to mention that.
1: (laughs) But, uh, But beyond that, I mean, who might we see? I mean, well, Sebastian Vettel. Almost certain not to feature. Keep in um, mind, Lewis
0: Hamilton not signed yet uh, for no. his return to Mercedes. So it's always possible. Isn't just it? saying. I don't know what I'm saying, by, but I just I'm saying. By Collis, maybe. Hey, Colin. Colin Collis is going to be driving uh-huh. for Jim.
1: House. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the answer is there's There is certainly no shortage of talent out there that's going to be available to Jim. The key again here is just what way the finance, finance is going to work. Is this something where Jim is going to fund, um, you know, the top drivers? I sort of don't see that is the straight answer. I sort of don't see that as being quite part of it. I think uh, what he's...
0: I could see one, Graham. I could see one and not, yeah. quote, funding just for the sake of it being fun. But more from an aspect of a, a quote factory driver, uh someone whose feedback and alliance is always uh unquestionably uh directed at and uh, a result of uh the Glickenhaus program. So I could see that. I don't know if I'd yeah. go too much farther than that though.
1: No, I think you know, I think the part of the kind of the commercial proposition from Jim and Jesse Glickenhaus is quite likely to be Here's an opportunity for you, in certain name of enormously skilled driver uh, looking to tick a box, um, to be competitive and to win the Le Mans 24 Hours overall, uh, what, what you want to be paid as well. Well, that's not part of the deal here. Um, so I could see that potentially being part of it. And it wouldn't be the first time. There wouldn't be the only team that's ever done that um, in the uh, recent or distant past. Um, I, <laughs> It's one of the storylines still to emerge, isn't it? And um, we'll keep a weather eye on that. There's, there's all sorts to catch up with with the LMDH and Hypercar Marketplace uh, as things start to emerge in the coming weeks and months, I think we'd say, at this stage.
0: Going to get one or two here uh, from the bottom of our Weck Aslam Elms Eco selections, Graham. And then let you pick if we want to do any more. And know that we have almost half of the episode uh, is focused with questions in general. The good old general, oh, wow. also known as Hegeneral. You, Um God. And then there's some Isma, asthma, I don't know, whatever it's called. Some other series that we talk about on occasion <laughs> uh, to get to. Let's go to our pal Jacob Bame it says, Grey Ham with the WEC going down to just six races in 2021. How long do you reckon until the championship gets back up to eight? Three years? Four years? What do you think? He throws in hashtag me personally. I'm slightly worried that teams might actually get a bit spoiled by the shorter season and begin lobbying for it to stay. It's not a bad thing. Racing costs a lot of money, but I don't feel like six races makes much of a world championship.
1: It's going to be governed by basically what the market says it can withstand and that's principally just because that's the way these things work by what the factory teams say that they can withstand both economically and as a justification for that investment. So that's the balance. If they say six isn't enough because it doesn't give us enough opportunity to do X and Y, then that's an upward um, pressure. It's fair to say that the level of health of the WEC entry this year will almost, that's not quite fair, will substantially be affected in a positive way by the narrowing of the gap between the budget of European Le Mans series plus Le Mans and a WEC season, with that gap being under 10% now. Um, The big plus, as we said, I think on last week's show, and I think the week before that as well, the big plus of the WEC being, of course that you get a guaranteed Le Mans entry as part of that additional, just short of 10%. So um, at the moment, there is a fair amount of pressure to uh, to have introduced that six-race championship. That's been successful uh, from the teams lobbying for it. Um, a lot of the rest of it, I think, is going to depend on what happens as we come through the tail end of this global crisis. We've not seen the end of the, of the economic effects of this. Um it would not be uh let's put it this way, I don't think you get particularly long odds on it staying the lower side of eight for a couple of seasons. Uh and then beyond that is going to depend exactly what uh, comes in. But look, if we end up with, you know, a an impressive number of factory teams going into the converged uh top class um, period, then that might affect things. It affects in terms of the championship's budgets, it affects affects the affordability of a variety of things. Um, but for the moment, six I think is a smart move. I think that's, that's reasonably sustainable for most of the teams. I'm hearing good things from the teams that are committing uh, and there's more to come. Um, but everything from here on in is going to be determined by a far, some far more global Uh, factors than the ones we sit uh, talking about here week in week out it's not going to be governed by uh, the sport it's going to be governed by the ability to travel it's going to be governed by the affordability of travel and logistics it's going to be governed by whether or not those all-important OEM boards say yes or no uh, to the the possibility of new programs coming forward
0: let's stay on the topic here Since you mentioned governed by, any idea when we might be hearing who indeed uh, the sport might be governed by uh, in the future? Since we know that that is indeed a uh, a topic we need to resolve as well with someone being named as uh, Gerard Nouveau's replacement.
1: Uh, What I expect at the moment is for Pierre Fionn to be a very much more visible um, figurehead for the WC. He is the president of the ACO. But uh, for two or three reasons, I think Pierre would like to step up a little. But uh, principally, there's further economic reasons here, which is the ACO, not a large organisation by any means, was, of course, hit badly by its principal events having to be cancelled this season. Uh, or If not cancelled, then have to be done behind closed doors. That's a huge financial hit. There was a process of voluntary redundancies, Going on uh, within the ACO now, I'm aware of a couple of people who will be leaving if they've not already gone. so my guess would be that things may well have changed on that front. Uh, I, I suspect the name that you will hear most often is Pierre Fion. It may very well be that someone else is put into place um, you know as a kind of business end of things um, but I'm not uh, right now expecting anybody to be brought in on any you know any soaring international level salary, um, to run the WEC and the ELMS, uh, could be I'm wrong. It could be I'm totally wrong. But right now it seems to me that, um, that it's likely that the, that the, uh, the most principal figurehead you're not going to hear about is the ACO president, Pierre Fion.
0: All righty then. Any others you want to pick before we move on, my friend, let me take a look at where we are on the old clockety clock.
1: Uh, unless, uh, we're about a half
0: just, hour or so, so, you know, we've well, we got a little bit well, of time just, if you
1: want it. Just run through a couple. James Counter says, with F1 heading back to Sao Paulo with a different promoter, might it pave the way for WEC to return to Brazil in a few years' times? It might. I think, again, that depends on where those entries come from and whether or not there is, you know, uh, interest for manufacturers, for their marketing needs uh, for the South American market. Uh, it is fair to say that um, the last couple of experiences in Brazil – uh, left a bit of a sour taste, but we're going to have a different person at the at the helm uh, moving forward. Let's try uh, another question. we we'll just a uh, quick run through the remaining questions in the section. Uh, Spirit of Franconia at hotel underscore Oscar on Twitter says: How would you rate the possibility of having a pair of R&L BMW M8s at uh, Le Mans in 2021? And why did we never see? They're awesome M6 GTLMs at this race. I think the answer, MP, is highly unlikely we're going to see those BMWs. There's no budget, as far as I'm aware, for them to run outside the States, and we covered off the prospects of them running in the States last time out. Is that correct? Correct. And as for the M6 GTLMs, the swift answer as to why we didn't see them in the GT pro classes because they're not GTE cars. They're, uh, amended GT three cars accepted by IMSA to help boast that, bolt of that field as were, by the way, the prior Z4s, Z4, um, GTLM cars that, so we did see just once one of those cars out in the ELMS race in the hands of Mark VDS. But other than that, those cars were not kind of ACO compliant either. Um, Move forward. One final one we'll take and let's go for Abdullah at please ignore underscore. Well, we won't ignore you, Abdullah. Uh, he says, uh, Is the Aston Martin Le Mans hypercar program dead for good? And also, are any other OEMs looking at the road car der- derivative side of the Le Mans hypercar rule set? Uh, yes, the Le Mans hypercar, the Valkyrie program uh, as a race car is dead. Um, I'm not expecting that to be revived. There's all sorts of uh, rumours and possibilities, as what we'll see uh, from Aston Martin moving forward. Um, We're in a little bit of a wait-and-see process there as to what happens with their GT programmes, their customer programmes, any prospect of a future um, prototype programme. Are we expecting any other OEM with a road-derived car not currently, that's not the same as saying we're not expecting anybody to come back with the hypercar rule set because beyond Persia I think there's every likelihood we will so at least one and possibly more some of whom are looking at hypercar as a standalone prospect some of whom are looking at it as um, you know, effectively looking back to back at the rules for LMDH and LMH uh, and we'll all be pleased when that's all uh, tightens itself down to being one moniker although I suspect it will be two because by the sound of it it's going to be Hypercar uh, in uh, ACO Rules Racing and am I right, fundamentally anything other than Hypercar and IMSA MP?
0: Yeah, LM HDH LM (laughs) uh, HDH uh, GM MGH, I forget uh, charge GBH there's a bunch of things going on, I'm not sure
1: (laughs) Right, let's move on to our other major sector uh, in this uh, Week in cars podcast. This is where I become the question meister and you become the the man answering and firing away answers as quickly as we can. We're going to move to IMSA and we're going to start with Tim Fulbrook, um, who asked a question about Philippe Albuquerque leaving the LMS WEC for the States, don't speak too soon. That's not necessarily or indeed actually the case. Could we see more drivers leaving at European WC level to join IMSA before LMDH rolls out? What do you reckon, MP? I would say I don't anticipate a lot of that. Uh
0: would say I've been a little bit surprised at how some of the talented drivers in the U S of a in the UK known for their sports car expertise have not been uh, signed or not been seriously considered for some of the vacancies here in IMSA. So yeah, that bit of that strikes me as odd Uh, staring at it from a neutral standpoint, Graham, uh, Mm -hmm. Richard Westbrook, Joey hand, for example, why those two should be full-time prototype or GT drivers here uh, in the U.S. next season. I'm unaware of either being in factory-type roles, pro-pro-type classes, and yet there are some other drivers, uh, Felipe being one, who I'm not making any negative statement towards. I think he's one of the best. I just find it interesting that for a vastly American owned, uh, series in terms of entrance. Just funny to me that there's a lot of, if not homegrown talent, those who've been here, been here regularly and are, uh, unemployed who haven't gotten a call while some like young Mr. Albuquerque, a fine, fine member of a Portuguese nation. He's been highly employed and his services have been secured coming here in a full-time capacity. Um, Obviously, he was here full-time not so long ago in IMSA, so known quality, known quantity, nothing negative there, Graham. But, yeah, I don't know if I see a lot more reaching over to uh, the good old Portugal's and wherever's to get your uh, full-time IMSA drivers, but I can tell you it has struck me as odd that there's somewhere I uh, I would think, boy, there'd be a fight to make sure that they are on someone's payroll. And for reasons I can't fully explain and more than just the two that I've mentioned, uh, we haven't seen that so far, but (laughs) I mean, another thing too, we're at more or less the beginning of December and we're going to be roaring ourselves in what, seven weeks or so. I mean, the, the new season starts rapidly. So there's not going to be a lot of people who aren't currently signed Graham that are going to magically pop up with jobs.
1: Indeed. A lot of
0: that's been let's, decided.
1: Yeah, let's stick with the, the driver marketplace. And there's two questions about the same thing, basically. One, first-time questioner. And welcome to the weekend Sports Cars from Dan Werderich. Um, uh, also question, not dissimilar question, from Vincent Anderson. Um, What can you tell us about the decision for Helio Castro Neves to go to WTR, Wayne Taylor Racing, for the Enduros instead of Michael Shank Racing, Meyer Shank Racing?
0: Yeah, well, pretty straightforward answer here, and it all comes down to timing. Meyer Shank Racing had Scott Dixon signed up to be their Enduro driver. I shouldn't say signed up. uh, Agreed into terms but had yet to sign anything we had a situation then where elio was out of luck effectively when it comes to msr i know that it is it says new team in indycar be doing six races next year but in terms of staying with that team to also do sporty car stuff there was no vacancy at the end and so he went over to wayne taylor racing and said hi uh i just won the championship you might actually be receiving the car i just drove to win the championship uh can i do anything for you found out that alexander rossi had already been signed to do the uh uh the three three of the four endurance race grams wayne taylor racing has not traditionally put a third driver in for the six hours at the Glen, so despite there being four Endurance events, they've really only signed drivers for three of those. Um, Rossi was already in place for that, and so therefore the only thing available to Elio was indeed the fourth driver role at Daytona, one that in recent years a highly successful gent who competes for Toyota by the name of Kamui Kobayashi has uh, done great things, things with, but now with Wayne Taylor Racing being Acura instead of Cadillac, uh, this Japanese brand said no to the guy from the other Japanese brand. So Kamui, as I wrote in something recently, is expected to be in uh, another Cadillac, this time just with Action Express Racing uh, come Daytona. So the reason that Elio is driving for Wayne instead of his new team, there was nothing available when he was looking to put a deal together. Coincidentally, Scott Dixon who was meant to drive for Marshank Racing, in that role that Elio was unable to get has been taken off the Acura uh, plate of offerings, and he will indeed be Chip Ganassi Racing's endurance driver next season in their Cadillac, which they have purchased from Ricardo Huncos. So hopefully that's a lot of little bit of factoidy information uh, for, an op- for one of our opening questions.
1: Let's uh, complete this part of IMSA with a couple more questions around the principally the prototype marketplace. Uh, Matt H- at Hawkins 96 says, with LMDH being pushed back, uh, are IMSA now running out of time to get some of the LMDH-interested parties to Le Mans? Sorry if this has been asked before. Any news on the hypercar in terms of entrance? Well, that's a separate question, I know, but LMDH, what are you hearing? How healthy is it uh, on the IMSA side of things at the moment?
0: continue to hear positives and i know that the positives are very easy to come by when things aren't real yet so uh, it's easy to say everything's great uh, when there's really nothing real or substantial to uh, um, confirm or deny that i have heard real things from a couple of manufacturers who've been discussed uh, who've been mentioned as high probabilities to be uh, to be part of things, and so yeah, I do believe that the positivity uh, that has uh, come forth and whatnot is real. Now, again, are we talking three manufacturers, five, ten? I don't know the exact numbers, but we know something's happening. Um, I'll just throw this out here, and this is more of a common sense thing than here's some super insider info. With almost no time left, we have Cadillac Racing, GM as a manufacturer, saying, "Hey, we really need to backfill the Wayne Taylor Racing vacancy." Graham. So mm-hmm. they ended up doing a deal with Chip Ganassi Racing. Now, again, all known, all great, etc. The timing of this really does stand out, though, is quite interesting. Because since we're wandering into what is supposed to be two stopgap seasons, in terms of the formula, right? The original DPI came forth in twenty seventeen. We know that those are meant to go away at the end of twenty twenty two, embark upon this new hybrid LMDH formula in twenty three. I just find it informational. How's that? I find it informational that now on the downside of this formula, there was a strong need and urging late in the day by GM racing to sign up a premier team, whether it would have been a Penske, Ganassi Andretti, whatever. Uh, there was a late decision apparently that they really needed to add another big, big bullet to their chamber. <sighs> Would we be silly, Graham, to suggest that that would be a very odd move for the final two years of a formula that's being phased out if that's all they had in mind for the relationship? Hey, big recognized team, uh, we got to get you in here. But yeah, we're going to go away in two years. That's not really a move we would think most manufacturers would make. So does that suggest that GM slash Cadillac Racing is thinking about a LMDH future. Of the many things we've heard about, whether they may or may not, Graham, I have received, hashtag me personally, received this Ganassi alignment kind of sort of out of nowhere late in the season or late, late in the year as the greatest indicator that GM will not be going away after 2022 in IMSA's top-tier category.
1: I tend to agree with you. I think it was um, spectacular timing, wasn't it? Um, last one that's got a kind of uh, a prototypical uh, influence Ooh. before we get into some, G, uh, some GT uh, action comes from Nate Detweiler. And uh, Nate says, we've seen a few European teams announce Rolex 24 programs. What could, the, uh, could IMSA and the ACO re- realistically do to entice more teams to come to play at Daytona? Would adding an auto-invite for Rolex 24, P2, P3 GTD winners, like Petit Lamont used to award, be a possibility? I know they already do the Truman Aitken for the season.
0: I do love the idea, Nate, of the auto-invite. I love it even more in 2022, because (laughs) we're still not convinced what this upcoming January back-to-back roar slash rolex 24 uh two weekends in a row is going to look like in terms of participation we know that a lot of folks have said we're going uh and i'm speaking more from the international capacity than domestic we're going going to be there we're going to bring something prototypey, gt ish whatever uh will they all appear that's something that i think uh definitely keep your eye on dailysportstar.com um, mm-hmm. in the coming days. And you might find that eh, maybe not so. Well, well just, some, good
1: and some, some good and some bad news, I think, to come on that front, which will be, it's going to be an interesting few days. But um,
0: Get COVID out of our conversation, Nate, and I think this becomes a, a absolute no-brainer. Uh, yeah. We would hope that if we're no longer talking about COVID, that we would also no longer be talking about global financial concerns so if we assume that one knocks on to improve the other then in theory 2022 might be pretty awesome to kick this idea into high gear so uh next time i speak with people in charge at imsa uh i'm going to mention it and who knows they may have already thought of it they may be announcing such a thing um speaking of i've heard there could be a really interesting thing in the pipeline, Graham, to come. Uh, I know it's been floated among teams. I can't tell you if it's going to be announced or if they're going to go forward with it, but I've heard there could be a pretty interesting adjustment um, on the horizon here once we Ooh. get to the first round of 2021 at Daytona. So I'll leave it at that. Um, but, yeah, could be uh could be an interesting change that they have in mind that they might do. Uh, I've heard about it from some of those who had it floated Too Is that the right way Ooh. to phrase it? I don't know. Uh, but, yeah, could be yet another change, knowing that we have a lot of changes coming already, Graham, with qualifying points and all manner yeah. of things. Uh, uh, the roar being moved uh, to fall directly before the race itself. Uh, we could have a, yet another change coming uh, that might be interesting. So apologies for being vague, but... Uh, I've heard about it, but not enough to feel confident in you know putting it in print yet. But uh, okay, hashtag wait and uh, see.
1: Hey, I was the first oh, to so, use it. There this you episode? go. So first the first, of the, the show. Uh, Remain of the questions, principally around the GT marketplace and GTLM and GTD, and we've got a variety of questions here that's around Corvette, Ferrari, Lexus, and McLaren. So let's go with them in that order. Um, uh, right turn lover and uh, Damian Peachman both asking about Corvette. Damien asking, uh, he says, with GTLM likely to come to an end at the end of 21, will this end Corvette's Le Mans participation? Um, Right to another says, if IMSA does go to GT3 Pro, what do you expect Corvette to do? Build a GT3 and continue in IMSA? Go to FIA, WC with a GTE? Or perhaps, Marshall, is what you've just said in answer to the earlier question, the answer to that question as well.
0: I would say yeah. The real great question mark here is on the alignment of ideologies when it comes to G T. Mm-hmm. This sadly feeling like really old topic of convergence slash pervergence, it not happening among GT uh formulas and what does that mean? Do we think, as mentioned here, as we've discussed uh, on the show, do we think that GTLM is heading into its final year? Yes. Unless there's some crazy infusion of entries that we uh, don't know about, we do believe that it's headed towards its uh, its final run. So, great. IMSA, as it has done before, as Grand Am did before, as the America Le Mans series did before, when it has seen market changes where a class is no longer really sustainable, It will do something that is in the best interest of a domestic championship that does not align with international championships. Mm -hmm. So, effectively, closing the door to Le Mans. So, in the Corvette front, could I see them return to Le Mans uh, in 2021 with this new vehicle? Of course. Could that be the final time? Unless we hear about Graham... Our friends at the ACO and LMEM saying, you know, that GTE Pro, GTEM thing, we're either going to ditch it or we're going to add an allowance for IMSA's new, whatever they're going to call it, GT3 Pro, Pro, uh, Pro AM, I don't know. We do have a bit of a difference thing uh, going on where as GTLM is on its knees here in America, It is not so in the WEC. On the pro level, of course, we could certainly use some more entries in WEC, but on the AM level, that's where there's been a pretty robust response. So just as we could have very different decisions on what classes are used for GT racing, we also have very different realities. It's not as if the WEC's uh, pair of GTE classes are collectively down to painfully low numbers and ripe for the same change or reboot to something different. So, this is where mm-hmm. I think we could have a bit of a disparity. Where would Corvette hold on to its GTLM slash GTE spec CARs and potentially bring those out once a year to run at Lamar while that formula is still what it is? About the only workaround I can think of, Graham. I don't know what else might come to mind for you.
1: Well, I'd say this much. I don't see um the ACO accepting GT3 or GT three pro uh it, Nor do <laughs> unless i unless they're forced into a position of numbers where they have to. And there's a good reason for that. Um and it's not this kind of uh, a at times seen as being the kind of not invented here. I think it 's solid business sense at the moment the the drive undoubtedly is to do what can be done to persuade as many manufacturers and for that matter privateers as possible into this new much vaunted top class this this con- converged the Mon hypercar and lmdh uh, class. Why then, from the aCO 's point of view, would you give a manufacturer or more particularly? A private team the opportunity to do something for less or it's not gonna be that much less frankly Uh, why would you give them a different opportunity if you look at the manufacturers who are in GT3 for the most part not completely but for the most part it's a very similar list to those that are um, you know in the room for LMDH So why effectively would you give them a free pass not to take on your new shiny top class? So for that major reason, that's where I see there being um, a a lack of impetus for the ACO to comply with a move towards GT3. I think they're going to want to see what comes out from LMDH and the Discussions that are going on with manufacturers before they make a decision about GTE. As with GTM, I think that's certainly got a much longer shelf life. Say much longer, at least a couple of years more shelf life than GTE Pro, even if we lose another manufacturer. So I don't see that being in any strife for at least three seasons right now. Why not? Look at the numbers we had at Le Mans this year. That was where they managed to squeeze more entries out from the industry. Um, there are three manufacturers with very live uh, customer sales programs, Aston Martin, the least numerically impressive of the lot, but Porsche, as we said last week, 10 cars sold for LMS and WC uh, prior use this season. No shortage of Ferraris and both the Aston and the Ferrari capable of being converted Uh, to and from GT3 spec, not cheaply, but it can be done. So GTM, I think, has got uh, some significant shelf life, certainly through and beyond the point where we'd expect to have got the first and second cuts of manufacturers um, calling um, yes or no to LMDH. GT Pro is the one that I think is certainly under more pressure, uh, but I think they've got a year before they have to make that call. It's not going to be coming into 2021. And do I think there's any chance at all of GT3 Pro uh, at Le Mans in 2022? I think that's highly unlikely at the moment. Um, But there's going to be some interesting choices made both by IMSA and by some of the brands that are currently involved in GTLM or on the fringes of GTLM and particularly in GT3 slash GTD. And it's, it's, with one of those, we go to next MP, a uh, uh, question from Clement Rosin, any news on Risi Competizioni's programs for next year?
0: Let me go back to uh, the question, the, the second part of that question on Corvette and building for GT3, assuming mm-hmm. that that is where IMSA is indeed heading come 2022. I would have to believe that this is exactly what they would do. Knowing that based on history, uh, we went through the same exact thing uh, at the end of 2008 in the America Le Mans series, where they were fighting among themselves, barring the brief and sporadic appearance of a Bell Motorsport Aston Martin DBR9. It was the two Corvettes playing with themselves. Sorry, that sounds dirtier than it was intended. Um, and they shifted from GT1, which it was hard to fathom that they would do that uh and go and build gt2 versions of the c6r chassis they were just so iconic and uh, yeah. rightly identified graham big bellowing gt1 cars the the nastiest uh made and boy that certainly fit uh the, the corvette racing iconic stature they wouldn't build gt2 versions of the same exact car because that's where all the competition happened to be and they were tired of running around on their own and were kind of sort of heading in that direction so i do absolutely believe they will i don't know what they would do at this stage whether it is build brand new uh, gt3 based c8rs or would they look to convert the existing chassis that they have Knowing that GT3 is indeed uh, customer-based, or customer in spirit at least, do I have a feel as for whether they would sell the cars or if they would just remain a pure factory team competing in the pro-pro level, just converted to GT3 spec, but no plans to sell? I don't know. I will just mention this to close uh, on the theme. We obviously have Porsche that is, uh has exited, exited IMSA and GTLM. They're gone. We hope they will come back to IMSA. Uh, we've been hearing for years now about LMDH being a place that interests them. Hope to see them there. Whether they do or don't, we know that they will indeed be selling cars, as they have for quite some time, uh, with their 911 GT3Rs, GT3 spec machines. When we do get factory presence back with Porsche, uh, knowing where we think Corvette might end up, um, I do believe, Graham, with some of the shifts here coming that have been announced among auto manufacturers of in X amount of years from now, but not too far from now, we plan to be fully electric. Um, I think for any new plans to do factory things... Even if it's a couple years away from that factory being all electric with their road cars, I just have a feeling if we're talking GT stuff, there's probably going to be more of a requirement for those to be sales based type categories that they play in. Hey, no, we're not going to let you spend a ton of, you know, factory dollars to go compete in a factory class and do nothing more. If you want to go do that, great. We'll give you some money to play in the pro pro but you're going to need some car sales and pro-am to really justify this because we have a big technology shift coming. We all know about and the just playing for the sake of fun with what is going to be outdated technology. Got to help us justify that with customer sales and what you do for a Porsche It's not a big deal. <laughs> That's who they are. That's what they've more or less always been for some manufacturers who've said, meh, yeah, we we're not so keen on having to ramp up, uh, sales and customer support and spares. And, you know, we just want to do our own thing. I don't know how many manufacturers are going to be allowed to do that. Uh, as long as we have this non-hybrid GT formula being used, whether it's a uh, GTE slash GTLM or GT three these days. So yeah, we'll just be interesting to see if there's more of a, if you want to play as a factory, you've got to sell some cars to help us justify this to the board type approach.
1: Wouldn't well, be a remotely surprised. to remember. It's been some time since we saw new blood into uh, the GT3 marketplace. The last new homologation for GT3 was at the start of the 2019 season. It was the McLaren 720S. There was no new car beyond that introduced to GT3. And, of course, this year has been a uh, almost literal car crash uh, for the industry I I know and am keeping cards close to my chest of one GT3 programme uh, for a new car coming in that was canned uh, in the last months um, and you're absolutely right I think we're seeing increasing pressure on those customer racing programmes to increase their efforts to get cars out of the door at uh, Silverstone uh, for the final round of the British GT Championship I uh, think I think I was told car number 23 for the McLaren 720S was in build. Car 24 has been uh, been bought. Uh, I spent some days this week in Italy at uh, Honda Racing at JS Motorsport, just Motorsport, uh, where I saw a number of cars um, nearing completion. One of which I wrote about the previous week. So I didn't see it because it was under a cover, but it was pretty clear that one of the cars that was ready for dispatch was the car that's going to be heading to um, to uh, John Potter and uh, Magnus in uh, the Emerson WeatherTech Sports Car Championship. But that I think either that or the one of the two Italian GT-bound cars is car number 27 for the Honda slash Acura NSX GT3 Evo Series, So they're the kind of numbers at the lower end that we're talking about. Then you get into the kind of the Audis, the MGs, the Ferraris, the Borgias. There's big numbers there. It's a sustainable business for those manufacturers. But you're absolutely right, MP. I think we're back where we were in 2008, 2009, where motorsport programs that were a cost center rather than a profit center are going to be next to impossible uh, to actually get through any kind of boardroom uh, scrutiny in the current environment. I, I don't disagree with a single syllable of it. Let's push on with uh, GTD now and questions about a couple of other um, manufacturers. One comes from Michael O'Keefe with AIM, AIM and Vassa Sullivan Parting Ways. What appears to be each group's long-term future in IMSA, says Michael. The
0: deal here, Michael with between Lexus and uh, the groups mentioned, uh, the deal was with Vassar and Sullivan. Uh, This is something where James Sully Sullivan and Jimmy Vassar. uh, This is a, a relationship that they fostered over quite some time. Aim was the team that was running and helping to facilitate this effort. So, just the quick uh, lineage Vassar and Sullivan were together and continue to work together in IndyCar uh, co-entrants on one vehicle, but that is working with a team that owns the cars, has the crew. They uh, are not folks that are uh, asset based um, or, or uh, personnel based in that relationship. When they got the Lexus deal, Still the same thing, where, great, we got the deal, but we need a team. (laughs) And AIM provided the majority of that. They did build a new shop in North Carolina, and so that's where they've been based out of. AIM, Canadian Outfit, uh, really, really good, uh, highly skilled folks there. Um, So they provided the infrastructure to run things. Would say that over the last couple years since it's been together, the Vassar Sullivan side has filled out more and more of the, uh, the crew side. And I'd been hearing for a little while that there was a split coming up and I do not have the juicy spicy details as to why there was a split, but I do know that there was something in the relationship that maybe wasn't working for at least one side, if not both sides. So we know that while it hasn't been formally announced, I know it because I've asked and been told, uh, that where this week's announcement of the split uh, confirmed just that with nothing really trailing the future, there should be an announcement here, I don't know, I'm guessing in the coming days, Graham, uh, of, hey, we're indeed continuing, Vassar Sullivan, uh, as a Lexus RCF GT3 team. What I do not know of, is if and where AIM might fit. Uh, Andrew Bourdine, a couple of very talented brothers who've uh, done some really good things as AIM Autosport. It's a talented, talented group there. Uh, Just don't know where their future might lie in IMSA.
1: Okay. Um, James Counter comes with what he says is a two-part question. We'll be the judge of that, James. Mm. Uh, are McLaren going to pony up for the manufacturer for IMSA in 2021? Is he reading too much in to Compass Racing changing manufacturer for the coming season? IMSA seems to be set for a notable increase in Hondas and GTD next year. Why do you think that is Well, Hondas accurate?
0: Let's answer the last question first. If the question is... Why do we think there might be more accurate NSX GT3s after they just won back-to-back IMSA GTD championships? Mm. Eh, I'm not sure. Uh, they seem to be doing fairly okay there. Uh, I know that among the manufacturers that participate in GTD in terms of supporting teams and whatnot, you know, call it customer programs, Honda performance development has been fairly robust and active in that regard. Every manufacturer is active in some way, shape, or form, but to varying degrees. And I think uh, the folks at H.P.D. have just demonstrated that they are more engaged than some, not necessarily more engaged than all, but um, yeah. I, I just I think that there's a, a strong willingness on the behalf of Acura and HPD for there to be a strong presence in the series. And therefore they're working hard to make sure that those things happen. It doesn't mean they're giving out free cars or anything like that, but you know, there are some manufacturers bluntly who just sit and wait for the phone to ring. And there are others that say, Hey, we got cars to sell and let's go find people that might want to buy them and see how we can work with them. And, and, go and try and do good things together just a different mindset than we are here to sell and if you buy it and pay whatever number then we'll turn up versus hey we're racers and let's go find some people to race with uh so i think that might be one of the reasons why there are a number uh or a pretty solid increase of cars coming graham you uh Uh, attach the Magnus name to uh, Mm -hmm. the Archangel Acura that's coming. Um, We've got a couple others coming. We're waiting on some confirmation on the Compass side uh, that they will indeed be doing that. But I would say on the McLaren side, I assume they will. I assume that we will see some, uh, at least one or more McLaren GT4 spec McLarens running in the Michelin Pilot Challenge Series. Uh, wrote in one of the things that I put together in recent weeks that the uh, Missing in Action Team, also known as Motorsports in Action Team out of Canada, uh, they have ordered a brand-new GT3-spec McLaren, what, Mm 720S, if I have my numbers correct. So uh, I would assume they will. A little sidebar on this. Never fully know with some of the smaller-ish manufacturers, either vehicle sale size is small or just live very limited numbers of whatever model running you never fully know how that gets paid graham is it a check you know is it a wire transfer coming in full from the manufacturer is the team as we saw with core Sport, with nissan and dpi for that one year that they ran them nissan didn't pay a penny how did that get paid we have our ideas but you know it was satisfied but uh, do we think the Nissan did the majority of that to the team, come out of their pocket to do that? Just mention this here: is McLaren committing themselves to upwards of a million dollars potentially of marketing funding and whatever else? I don't know. Uh, are is a team or teams possibly helping out with that in some way? I don't know, but it sure seems like a pretty big number when we might only be able to count one, two, or three total McLarens across WeatherTech Championship and. Uh, the Michelin Pilot Challenge Series as well, that'd be a lot of money just for a little light amount of customer racing.
1: It's a pretty similar question, by the way, from Mike Christoph, who also asks about uh, whether or not building GT3s, is it good or bad business? Is racing GT3 cars not good or bad business? But uh, he's asking as well, why there aren't more Lexus RCF GT3s and McLarens, other homologated cars that seem to be underrepresented. I think, actually, what you've just gone through there uh-huh. is a pretty good representation of some of the reasons why that's not the case. Let's move on to general, I think. You said earlier in the show, MP, that there's a goodly representation of questions there.
0: Yeah, there's one um, uh, There's one I wanted to cover off quickly from IMSA, though, yeah. um, just because it's simple. Our pal Andrew Backus says, Back in June, Myers-Shank Racing got sponsorship from a quote digital finance company called todak the sponsorship was paid in todak's cryptocurrency how'd that work out for the team he says todak is not listed on the team's partner page anymore suggesting andrew does that something has gone wrong well uh, i wouldn't call it wrong just planned obsolescence so with Marshank Racing bidding farewell to its GTD program. That also means that the vehicle it entered on behalf of Jackie Heinricher, uh, the number 57 Acura, which featured the delightful Misha Goikberg. Well, that effort is no longer part of the Marshank family. Uh, the TODAC sponsorship, with uh, Misha's background and whatnot being finance-based, that was a Misha sponsor. So with Misha no longer part of the program, not a surprise that Todak is no longer listed on the team's partner page. So uh, would we be surprised, Andrew, to learn that Misha is rocked up somewhere else uh, in the paddock next year and that potentially Todak might be on that team's partner page? Just might. Just, just might. So you said the word. Hegner, Graham Goodwin.
1: Well, it, oddly, I've just looked at it. And there's actually another couple that that more neatly fit here.
0: Yeah, don't they? Um,
1: don't they? Sorry, uh, Daniel Summerskill and John Wojnar both asked questions uh, with the same two words at the beginning. The First, of those two two words is Kevin. The second is Magnuson. You want to fill in the gaps?
0: I do not know who they are referring to. So I thought it was, um, I thought it was Jan. Yes. Mevin Cagnison, that's the other guy I've heard of. Uh, All right, let's see. Let's do a little bit of a process answer here. Um, Not that it means anything um, as for... Yeah, but hey, why don't we answer this in a bit of a process manner? Sometimes those are fun. Um, Back on November 11th, I sent racers Formula One reporter Chris Medland a text that said, hey, have been hearing from IndyCar teams that have spoken with Kevin Magnuson that availability he thought he might have is no longer a thing. And they are reporting back privately or, you know, they're not giving me on the record go publish it answers. They're not telling me things that are top secret, just Hey, you know, ask and uh, get some background. They're telling me that in conversations they've had with Magnus as to whether he would be available next year if they had something in IndyCar, um, his significant interest, while it remains, has been slightly diminished in terms of potential availability. So in the text that I send to our F1 reporter who might not see Kevin every weekend because of all the COVID restrictions and whatnot. He's orbiting around him. So it was a note that, hey, here on November 11th, I think, um, Kevin, probably not an IndyCar thing next year because it appears he has significant WEC offer or offers to remain in Europe, but Mm -hmm. I've also heard that he has a significant option here in IMSA in America Um, so just as a thing that we do among reporters I do this with you you do it with me etc for those who are in the family it might be a hey I've heard this thing it's not really you know granted uh, Kevin coming to IndyCar that would be me if it's Kevin maybe going to WEC which is what it sounded like was more realistic at the time Mm-hmm. that would be more of our F1 reporter who's going to see him and potentially get a good story there because that's been the big F1 question. Where's Magnussen yeah. going? Where's Groschon going? Where's Sergio Perez? So, long story short, uh, a couple of weeks ago, sent him that note and didn't really go anywhere. Uh, I had, in the time being, tried to stay on top of the Magnus Magnussen thing a little bit and had heard that Indeed, the option in IMSA uh, was looking like it was going to be Ganassi. Like, oh, fun. That would be a lot of fun. And got a little bit of background that said, huh, it's, that too is now looking unlikely. Not because he wouldn't be a great fit for the team, but because something that I've heard from a number of North American teams not limited to IMSA. Uh, IndyCar as well that have European drivers who live primarily in Europe might come here, stay for weeks or a couple of months if needed when the season gets busy. But by and large during the season, they fly back home to wherever multiple times uh, with COVID questions about what next season might be like had heard that if anybody's going to drive for this new Cadillac team, that you're going to need to be based in America full-time because we're not going to sign you up, have our country, your country, whatever, say, oh, sorry, borders closed, can't get in, and you're sitting in wherever you might live that's not in the uh, in the U.S. So, had heard that that was looking like a deal-breaker. Kevin with a young family and whatnot uh, not necessarily wanting to do that. Now, has that a modified or adjusted? I don't know, but I can tell you that The last update that I had on the topic topic I just mentioned, hey, Magnuson, certainly of interest, but it sounds like he doesn't want to move to the States with the family and whatnot uh, to do IMSA. I kicked that down a gear as, all right, well, I don't think that's going to become a thing and shifted my focus elsewhere. So of the four drivers that I've heard were being considered, one or two of which I think we discussed last week as not particularly likely from what I've heard. I've since heard that, and this is before uh, the story went out about Magnuson. I'd heard, I think Sunday or Monday, Hey, uh, Briscoe and Vander are indeed in play. And funnily enough, I heard from one source, it's a hundred percent Ryan Briscoe. And I heard from another source no, jackass. It's a 100% Renger. And at least for what's been written elsewhere, it's been written that it'll be Kevin and Renger full-time. We've said here a little while ago about the Dixon thing, he'll be the third. Uh, but for what's been published elsewhere, uh, of the three, the let's see, four drivers that I was tracking for this uh, most recently, that was Ryan Briscoe, Renger Van de Zanda, Alex Lynn. And Kevin Magnuson, uh, the Magnuson angle I mentioned, kind of stopped following that when I heard it was pretty much not going to happen. That uh, I've since learned that's wrong. Have heard that Kevin signed his deal last night. Graham, we're recording this on a Saturday, Ooh. so that would be Friday. Um, now, well, let's see. I apologize. I'd have to go back and look at the email, but. Um, Either Thursday night or Friday night, but have heard that he has indeed formally signed. Uh, can just share again, process wise. Have learned factually that when the story first story went out saying that Magnuson Ganassi Cadillac uh, done deal or going to or whatever, not the not true in the sense that it hadn't been signed yet. Now again, uh, I've written plenty of stories. We've as of you of the, hey, uh, sure, there might not be a contract on a piece of paper yet, but it's going to happen. So Mm -hmm. technically, was it accurate? No. Uh, Was it 99% accurate, Uh, and we knew it was going to become 100% accurate? Yes, and I'm told that it has. Alex Lynn, who I'd heard was going to be in, he drove for uh, Wayne Taylor in their Cadillac, at at least one endurance race that comes to mind, Graham, um, he was announced, what, I think, Monday or Tuesday as a Formula Formula E driver. So that took him off the plate. And so, admittedly, uh, prior to the story uh, of Magnuson going to drive this Cadillac, uh, I had both Renger and... Risco really is the remaining significant options and kevin kind of down a wee bit and uh i got that totally wrong so uh this is what i know um we'll throw one thing out here too and this is maybe the subject of a story who knows uh or a little short analysis piece when uh, all the stuff gets confirmed I believe probably in the coming days um do i think that Chip Ganassi Racing has signed Kevin Magnussen to drive their Cadillac DPI with zero thoughts about what he might be able to do for the team in the near future in other areas where they compete, that would be a giant no. Uh, I don't believe that they have signed him just because, hey, he might be available and he's a good guy. And we assume he can drive a uh, Cadillac DPI well. um, Those things will all happen for next season. The bigger ticket item to consider here, and then we'll move on to uh, whatever other questions, Graham, is there was an experiment that the Ganassi team tried in IndyCar. Starting in 2019, they hired the pretty awesome Felix Rosenquist. Felix was... Meant to be and desired to be, Graham, uh, the first Dario Franchitti type paired with Scott Dixon since Dario retired um, after his big crash in 2013. They've put a number of drivers alongside Dixon in, in IndyCar. None of them came close to matching him or looking like a future successor. Scott just turned 40 or is 40. Uh, Scott's probably in the twilight of his career. Who would be Scott's successor uh, in a year, two, three, however many, when he decides to retire from full-time IndyCar? Felix Rosenquist was hoped to be that person, was not. They have recently signed a delightful young Spaniard by the name of Alex Palou Graham. Um, mm-hmm. They have no idea what he's going to be. They hope he's going to be excellent. I would be lying if I said the team feeling I've gotten is that he will be uh, the future team leader replacing Scott Dixon. If he develops into that, amazing. But I don't think anyone has that expectation for him right now. The guy who's going to be driving their Cadillac DPI next year coming off of many, many years in Formula 1 where he's considered an exceptional talent... Um that sure strikes me as someone who might have a future driving an open wheel for Chip Ganassi Racing um, as a potential successor to Scott Dixon. So, just overstating what probably many of you are considering—really, really, duh, no crap, Pruitt. I'm like, really, that—that that, <laughs> we everyone <laughs> can figure that part out. But uh, I would just say, for those who hadn't worked that out, um, I would say that they have bigger ideas of what a Kevin Magnuson could be for them. There's just no immediate opportunity in Open Wheel. So, hey, let's kick off this relationship and do good things in DPI.
1: Oh, excuse me. Just nudged the microphone. Okay, let's uh, move down this long, long list of her general. Let's have a look at uh, Rob Chalmers says are the OEMs organisers talking in plausible terms to you about zero emissions racing will it involve A. a lot of control parts to maintain cost viability like Formula E did initially B. a wide open rule book to attempt different approaches in C. very low expectations I think everybody is talking about the inevitability that more or less will come MP and we are beginning to see more experiments coming I actually had the chance yesterday to have a look at first time, pretty close up at a extreme e car um, down at um, United Autosports. Um, I don't don't think so much frozen in fear by this, simply that that everybody's looking for a way to move away from what we've got at the moment, which are two separate paths: one with series promoters and fairly spec-type uh, attitude to it along this parallel line with, well, if there is electrification, it's hybrid, um, with homologated prototype and GT racing, but we've not really yet seen that mainstream crossover, have we?
0: We have not. I think, Rob, you're, you are asking a question <sighs> not... Enough OEMs and organizers want to answer that question right now. Likely based out of, I wouldn't say fear, more out of, man, we're in a bit of a comfort zone, right? or have been in a bit of a comfort zone. I know that we have to bolt on some hybrid-ish or some things to make the cars hybrids now in many series. I know that we have an increasing number of all-electric series coming Uh, None of them other than Formula E would we consider vaguely mainstream, but this is the thing where we hope, absolutely hope, that the OEMs who've been electric averse and organizers that have been doing their best to stave off any electrification or, or making whatever smallest possible concessions Uh, just to tick the box, uh, but really not embracing it, the sooner those manufacturers and series change their approach to this, I think the better. Because if we end up being (laughs) the form of sport that collectively is going to look really outdated and really entrenched in old ideology, technology, and whatnot, I mean, that's just where racing, you know, we've been talking about for a while now, right, Graham? Uh, mm-hmm. Is r- racing sustainable? How? What will keep it sustainable? Its popularity continues to shrink. Even Formula One, which we know is the biggest, most popular form of the thing we love, its hold on the world is not as big as it once was. Run down all the other series that you might consider uh, significant, and they no longer have the segment of the the audience that they once did just tell you that I can't tell you whether it's an evolution thing, right? Hey, racing fans tend to be a little bit older, been around for a while and they certainly have liked their combustion engines as they get older and fade and and whatnot. Does fandom for racing go away altogether? Uh, I don't know. Uh, Does this march towards a significant technological technological change? Um, will this be something that for us to stay alive as a sport, um, we need to embrace that and be on the cutting edge so that, you know, we're not doing it begrudgingly. And after too much of the younger generation that might have an interest said, nah, dude, (laughs) this is grandpa's stuff. You know, we, I've been driving something fully electric for 10 years. You're just now (laughs) wanting to do some, you know, token type thing. I don't know the answers to this, Rob. I do know that uh racing has n- rarely been a sport where we stick our head in the sand and try and pretend the changes of the world don't affect us. We've been doing that more than I think we should uh, in the last fifteen twenty years, but I would say this is one we really have to hope manufacturers and racing series collectively agree that's let's be let's be forthright and upfront with this uh not get Dragged into it, kicking and screaming uh, let's see I'm going to throw one at you at Graham crazy um, chair yeah uh, we, we'd still need to get you some of that j b eighty uh, to uh, get that chair fixed here as we get down to uh last couple of questions before we uh, uh before we move on for the week. uh Vincent Anderson, second time asking so here's your insult you're so poor Marshall that you can't afford long pants or gloves. When covering races in the cold, ah, a biting, biting intro here. Uh, do Wecker IMSICARs change out brake rotors uh, and brake pads during the endurance races? If so, uh, how do they not burn their hands on the glowing red parts? I swear we answered this, Vincent. So I think we did. Yeah, we did. And so, hey, this is our rare chance to say, you know what? You send in a question, and then you don't listen to the show.
1: <laughs> what I will the say heck, this, by Vincent? The way. I will say this: that um, Aston Martin were not expecting to be changing uh, brakes at uh, Bahrain, but did, and that cost one of their customers a championship win. Uh, that looks to have been an issue with the brake pads uh, for the Aston Martins. But um, do you want to answer this?
0: Since I answered it the first time,
1: uh, can do. I um, admit, not burn the hands of the glowing red parts. They wear gloves.
0: Yes, it's just the same way when you take things out of the oven uh and don't burn your hands i hope that's what you do vincent we don't know but we like to assume well uh same thing breaks and not burn so there you go uh let's see uh otter fr graham is there any news or progress from the smp slash spiker initiative
1: no that's it
0: dutch russian russian dutch Uh, Those
1: that missed this one, this was uh, s Racing saying that they were combining with the, if not defunct, certainly very quiet, Spiker brand to come back into motorsport. Spiker obviously had been involved both in GT racing um, and indeed with Formula One um, back in the day. Uh, so there's lots of speculation as to what that might mean, whether or not that m- might mean we see something, something in GT racing or even in prototype racing? The answer is, I have no idea, and the um, contacts I made with the various people from both parties have had a nil response. So that is another hashtag wait-and-see, I'm afraid, Otter, F-R. Okay. To um, okay. quit for right-turn lover, do I do I think, no, guess whether Phoenix are still going to field out? This comes on the back of Ernst Moser telling us, uh, that they are going to uh, be looking at LMP2. I know that they most certainly are looking at LMP2. I know which car they've obtained. So they already have an Orica. They've also um, signed a deal with the Wokenspiegel uh, team Man- uh, Manchau, uh outfit to run their Ferrari GT3 program and a new LMP3 program. Uh, so that is one of their programs for the coming season. Having been to the Phoenix workshops, remember this is an organization that's run multiple GT3 programs and DTM in the past. They have plenty of space to run other things. And if we're all right about what it is they're trying to do with the LMP2 program, I see every reason to expect that we would see Audi GT3 cars still running with the Phoenix brand as well.
0: All right. I'm going to. foist one or two more in your direction. We'll see if you duck or if you swing and connect. Tom Firth. Hey there, Tom. Any thoughts on the ARG slash SRO partnership for GT World Challenge Australia? Tom, yeah. you win the most obscure question of the week uh, right here. Any impact on the Bathurst 12 Hours, which the SRO has a relationship with supercars for? Sounds like it could be some interesting politics. Potentially... <laughs>
1: Yeah, um, right. So what this is all about is SRO having um, effectively won a competition to uh, be uh, the organisers, promoters of the Australian GT Championship. They've now rebranded that. That clearly was part of their approach as GT World Challenge Australia, joining the Asia, Europe and North America uh, series as part of that global uh, network of uh, regional continental series. Um Frankly, after the last few years for the Australian GT Championship, it could only be a good thing. Uh, It's not been um, the most healthy of times for a series that that really was pretty healthy until fairly recently, fairly chaotic in terms of the organisation, the communication, etc., etc. As long as, and there's no reason to think uh, anything different once we get back to a bit more global normality, as long as the relationship between Supercars and SRO for the, the Bathurst 12 Hour re- remains because it is healthy. I can't see this being anything other than a good thing in encouraging stability in the Australian marketplace. Um, I, I think this is a great example, together with the Asian marketplace, where everybody would profit from this being a a more outward-looking uh, arrangement. There are are lots of things happening in the global marketplace at the moment where I think, uh, particularly as we're in recovery mode from COVID, um, at least I hope we are, uh, that I think we could profit greatly uh, from various race organisers, championship organisers, taking a more collaborative approach in the future. That would be a massive help to the global manufacturing industry the support industry, the logistics industries, the travel industries, and the motorsport industry in general, i.e. the teams and the car owners. We need to start adjusting to a new reality where um, lead-in times are going to be longer because there's going to be fewer companies involved in this, uh, the logistical uh, challenges are going to be greater because there's going to be fewer flights. Um, that needs to be taken into account. And the best way to get around that is to get sensible people sitting around big tables with lots of coffee and possibly biscuits and um, and have some sensible conversations about how you put calendars together that operate in everybody's best interests, not just one championship. Uh, I think this is a good thing for Aussie GT racing.
0: As the fat guy in the show relationship, I stopped listening after you said biscuits. Uh, okay. I'm going to try and do a bunch of general question answers here, and then we'll jump over and see if there's anything we want from fun before saying goodbye. Sam, okay. Anadiotis, Hey there, Sam. You say, uh, were there ever any efforts or plans for anyone to run privateer Ford GTs and Imps or WEC? It's a shame none were ever run in customer hands other than Ben Keating's effort at Le Mans. There were inquiries for sure. One yep. that I heard of, which may have been written about somewhere, I don't know, uh, but I know was a there was an interest that went nowhere. Was Jackie Heinricher apparently oh, really? inquired about uh, getting her hands on a Ford GT privateer effort? In Sam, the answer that I've heard everywhere and every time, whenever those inquiries were made, the money you would want for us to do this. We could solve world hunger. <laughs> uh, world everything. Ben bought the car. Uh, we know that there was a Ford support package. He's running there alongside the factory team at Lamar, so that was great, right? And we know that the vehicle wasn't cheap, but it's certainly going to be a, a valuable invest or it is a valuable investment. But beyond that, uh yeah, everything I've heard has come with a what? Not just the cost of the car but also the support package has been so cost prohibitive that we don't see the, see the Ford GTs running anywhere. Ed Joris uh, talking about vaccinations, uh, heh, wondering, well, you got a couple angles here in vaccinations, but you're wondering if uh, ACO, IMSA or whatever might work a deal with one of the uh, COVID-19 vaccine producers to make them the official COVID, COVID vaccine. Uh, maybe piggybacking on how NASCAR does things. No. Hi, Rocky. Our cat Rocky wants to be fed. Uh, Damian Peachman, I'm going to thank you in advance for two questions that are yes or no. First one, are the current uh, GT500 inline four-cylinder engines the best-sounding prototype engines in the world currently? No. Damian also asks, does the world need more series like Super SuperTekyu and NLS? Yes. Uh, We're going to go to Jeremy Zucker. says, hey there, guys. I was wondering about the major differences in rules between GTE slash GTLM and GT3. With Corvette being the one current manufacturer that doesn't have an offering in both classes, uh, what would go into the conversion to GT3 other than adding, you wrote ABS, but I read it as ABS? Um, Uh, They do
1: have an offering in GT3.
0: uh, That would be the the previous model, yeah. Correct. Um, I was under the assumption that GT3 was a bring almost anything and will BOP it to make it fit the class. Uh, well wishes to you guys and both your families at home yes, that is indeed the the case there's a difference in electronics for sure uh there's some other differences as well aerodynamic uh probably the most uh visible difference um i mean there are many differences uh involved here Jeremy but your overriding point if we're not talking about conversion just since mm-hmm. you mentioned Corvette, but just talking about difference g t e slash g t l m involves building cars to extremely specific rules. BOP exists there. That is how they try and balance the cars, but there's not a lot of variance involved when it comes to the build sheet to conform to those rules. GT3, it's not as if it's a come with anything and we'll figure it out, but it is certainly a wider latitude, first of all. But secondly, since it, is a class that is not designed from the outset as a full pro class as gte and gtlm happens to be it does come with a uh it comes with driver aids uh, to make it easier for am drivers to get performance out of the car that are stripped from gte and gtlm so you are correct in your uh, summation here
1: I'll add one other thing, which is the two cars we spoke earlier about, both the Ferrari and the Aston Martin being able to be converted to and from uh GTE slash GTLM to GTD slash GT3, completely true. But both of them require a completely different engine. So you'd have to do an engine transplant for both the Ferrari and the Aston Martin to make them compliant between the two. So effectively what you're doing, if you want one car, Compliant in both is in general, you're buying a car plus an engine plus bodywork um, because the bodywork regulations are slightly different as well. It's more, I think, uh, for the Aston Martin than it would be for the Ferrari. I'm going to pick up a couple as well here uh, one from John Schultz. Uh, Do you think that Brexit could uh, lead to a far-reaching separation of British and continental European sports car racing involving teams and drivers? Uh, This comes in a context of, uh, well, WEC, LMS, GT World Challenge Europe, Endurance and GT Open. Uh, None of those will feature the UK on their international um, calendars for 2021. The answer, I think, is sadly yes, I think at the moment it's to do with the uncertainty of logistics. People are just not sure. There's some concerns about being able to get things moving. Um, I hope that doesn't become uh, a real-world reality because if it does become a real-world reality, and I say this as someone, and I'm perfectly happy to deal with anybody that uh, finds this in any way controversial or insulting, I think uh, the principle of Brexit is completely boneheaded. Um, And... Uh, I hope it doesn't mean that my industry gets hit as hard as I think it might be because it's one of the industries which the UK has a very firm base and uh, for us to be without a meaningful um, international sports car race in 2021, uh, I hope it's not uh, the the shape of things to come. Uh, The other one I'll I'll take here, and I'd like to hear whether or not you've got something to say about this one as well, comes another one from Right Turn Lover, on the to- topic of, are you kidding me? What was the most cryptic media announcement you remember in the context of sports car racing? I thought about this one, and I think it was Cory Shaw. And the Shaw, I want to say it was the SCT 1000. This was at a low point for the American Le Mans series. And Cory Shaw, um, I should say, by the way, the recently, fairly recently deceased Corrie Shaw uh, came along and did a announcement at, I think it was Sebring, but I might be wrong. It might have been Road Atlanta uh, talking about this astonishing program he had for LMP2, LMP1 and club-level prototypes, building a spectacular n- a number of cars for spectacular little money. And this was being prompted as being the, uh, the solution to all of LMS's problems. It just wasn't. Uh, I think is what it came down to. Um, it was uh, very much, I'm afraid, uh, vaporware. That was the one that uh, rings bells with me. I don't know if there's anything that you can recall, MP, that's uh, at that level or beyond.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, there's one that I would say is the winner in still champagne. That would be, what year was this, 2014, maybe? 2013, 2014, Laguna Seca, Pirelli World Challenge Series, board of directors decides to fire part ways with whatever. It's uh, CEO Scott Beauvais. Uh easily the worst series principal I've ever experienced, and I worked in the Indy Racing League, run, founded, and owned by <laughs> Tony George. So there's a bit of context for you. Um, Beauvais was bounced. For those who don't know Scott Beauvais, what he was, he was, let's just say that if President Trump was looking for someone to model... uh behavior after that Scott Beauvais might've been an inspiration. Uh, this is someone who had no time for anybody's views or opinions on anything other than his own. Um, what just felt that the right way to run a, uh, second tier sports car series in North America was to embrace his inner Mussolini or whomever else full dictator time. And there were some positive things that happened under his direction. And there were many negative things that happened under his direction. And so funnily enough, the people in charge of the series said, um, you can't be here anymore. And so the fun part was he stormed off, and off he went, and there we go, and it felt like the sun finally came out from behind the clouds. uh birds reappeared, little squirrels and animals just wandered into the paddock uh it was just it was uh, there was a petting zoo it was amazing so uh the in typical beauvais fashion also uh I would say something that he shares with President Trump as well, things that he would say. Uh, were not necessarily always rooted in things that would be considered truthful or factual. Uh, he fired off a quote. I I'm trying to think. Was it Tony Young, Tony DeZino, who was still a reporter then? It might have been Tony. Might have been someone else. He fired off a quote to somebody. Uh, right you know, seemingly immediately after being bounced that he was starting a rival series. And so that part, again, that that's not a surprise. That's the, when you get dumped, it's for whatever. I'm going to have a new girlfriend tomorrow and she's going to be better than you kind of thing. Like, all right, okay. That's not too far off the playbook of how dictators would react. The best part, though, Graham, in Right Turn Lover, was the following, was the addition to this. He has 10 manufacturers ready to
1: go with him.
0: 10.
1: That's amazing.
0: Uh, now I realize that we are again, whatever year this was five years, six years out. All I'm saying, Graham, I don't doubt the veracity of what he said. Just taking a little bit longer to get those deals done. So
1: you think he's probably at what seven now?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So they're coming. Don't doubt him. Yeah. Um, he was so good at what he did; he hasn't did it for no one else since. And so that's the that's the funny thing, right? Usually, you know, the these people in similar roles. You're a team manager of a high-ish profile thing. You're a driver for a highish profile thing. Lots of folks lose their jobs. Hey, I've been fired. I don't know how many times, right? Uh, plenty of people lose their thing. But if they're good at what they do or semi-good, they'll pop up doing that thing Ooh. somewhere else for someone else. Ooh. One of the rare instances, Graham, and in Right Turn Lover where
1: I haven't seen the guy,
0: hasn't done anything else.
1: Yeah, I've uh, actually not heard his name for about five years. You've just reminded me of two things. I'll, I'll tell you both of them in a moment.
0: Uh, but this is probably because, as we've sussed, he's getting those 10 con track's done with the manufacturer he's busy busy doing that the low-grade version of this though the more modern one so this would have been what the end of 2017 18 Mm -hmm. uh the the equally fine just heart swelled with love and compassion for his fellow human being paul Genelozzi, purveyor of the never sued never litigated against Rocket sports racing slash 3GT. Um, when the Lexus program went away, and that went to the aforementioned AIM Vassar Sullivan, um, in their press release from the 3GT side, uh, there was some sort of trailing, and we're coming back, and we, you know, whatever, paraphrasing, we've got you another sure manufacturer, and yeah, yeah, I tell you, hey, for all we know, Genelozi and Beauvais make that 11 manufacturers. They're working together. So it's been a
1: hell of a long meeting between the two of those, hasn't it? Zoom was created as a company
0: halfway through this process. So there's
1: more. I'm going to give you a couple of Scott Bove stories. Uh, The first was, and I won't tell you the incident that uh, that, uh, led up to this, but it was an argument between IMSA and World Challenge. And uh, I wrote about this. I seem to recall I wrote about this at Daytona. We're heading back to Orlando um in the car with another DSC reporter. Phone ring
0: Not walking, uh, so that's a good thing. In the car. There you go.
1: Um phone rings. It is Mr Beauvais. Mr. Beauvais then proceeds to unload on me. Um for I would suggest about forty minutes, a uninterrupted rant. Now to start with, I tried politely to, to make my point. Um, got into listening mode, turned the volume down a little, and then he would just blow himself out. And as is my habit in these instances where someone attempts to bully me, um, and having the advantage in this instance of knowing completely that he was completely incorrect in his assumption, pulled the car over, uh, and used the words I always use in those circumstances. And there will be possibly one or two people in the industry that uh, would recognize having had these conversations with me, which is, are you finished? Wait till either we get another explosion of rage or I get uh, an answer in the affirmative to which the uh, the answer was then given. Well, you've said this, this and this. Were you aware of this, this and that? At which point, Mr. Beauvais then through his operating manager, under the bus. He shouldn't have said that. Well, here you go, um, you asked, He did, and that's why I wrote the story. So rather than shouting at me, get your own ducks uh, ducks in order. The other one, and I think this was the race meeting that ended it for Scott, was it St Pete where they had... He had the habit, didn't he, MP, of um, changing um stewart's penalties himself yes which was ridiculous um there was one particular start where there was an in-car video from one of the porsche cup cars which started at that stage with a couple of seconds gap behind the gt3 cars this was in the days when they had a, a fairly extensive uh, gt3 field um got hold of that video, in car from this Porsche Cup car, and you could see there was some kind of instance somewhere further up the road. Um, and the pit wall had no protection. It was a kind of lowish wall. Yes. At least one person.
0: I remember this. Hanging
1: an iPhone over the side. And then all manner of carnage exploded in front. And I think it was a Lamborghini Gallardo came and harpooned this Porsche There's mayhem. There are literally large pieces of car flying over that wall. Uh, People could have been badly hurt. Cut a long story short, through the steam and the smoke and the dust, this car pulls to a halt with what remains of its front end, either in the wall or just by the wall, and centre frame on that TV camera, that live TV feed, was Scott Beauvais standing at the pit wall with his fingers in his ears. (laughs) It was the funniest thing. Um, Anyway, he didn't like the story I wrote about that one either. Um, Yeah, Scott, if you're listening, not missing you.
0: Yeah, so because I'm a total dick, I called (laughs) him – what did I do? Um,
1: I've called him plenty, I can tell you that. uh,
0: Yes, I called him – I forget what the reason was, but it was about a week after his firing and called him while driving home from an an event, and he just didn't pick up on it at all because, I mean, I hated him with a passion, and I'm confident he did the same for me. Just rang up and said, hey, how you doing? (laughs) Right? Didn't have a real question. Other than that, there was no real question. This is just my first contact with him after he was fired. Because the guy, he was that bad, right? And he just made everything so personal, right? It just the worst, truly yep. the yep. worst I've ever experienced in any series ever, ever. There's not even a number two. There's no one even close. And so I just rang, said, hey, uh, how you doing? Just calling to check in. And uh was hoping he would hurl the just A grade incendiary responses. Graham, not at all. Oh. Thank you. Yeah, well, you know, it hasn't been easy and you know, I, I've 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 got heart problems and I've got this and that. And I hate to say it, but it's just the classic best close to a relationship with the guy. He had no idea I was taking the piss out of him, thought it was a completely genuine call expressing concern for him, although we'd never, ever had that conversation before. It was always, no, you go F yourself with uh, uh, corn on the cob Uh, and, you know, whatever. (laughs) You know, you go sit on a pine cone and, you know, what just, right? And so for some reason, he thought that I was, for the first time ever and for no reason – Calling to express genuine concern, so uh, I just hung up feeling sad for the guy because he couldn't even tell like when the call was not really about his interests. So that wasn't I think, a good I thing. Think, I'm not yeah. crowing. I mean, this was no, a no, dickish no. thing. The
1: final, the final word on it, though, MP, is I'm afraid if your modus operandi in life and in business um, is to be a bully, it's going to come back on you,
0: well,
1: Mr. There President. Is that. There is that.
0: All right, where do we go next? We uh, we're well past when we should have stopped. So okay,
1: well let's just pick up a couple from fun to finish with, then, shall we? Um, I'm going to pick up one from Damian Peachman, looking back at the LMP1 era. He says, apart from that, is the LMP1 which car was the worst? That wasn't the worst. Um, the concept uh, the, the, uh, wasn't the worst. Certainly, it's a good one, isn't it? I'm going to say, hi, Carlos. No, no, that's finished races. I'm going to give you two. Um, One it's slightly unfair, uh, which is the Lavaggi, uh, which was always a bit of a kind of bathtub, Um, but at least it was an honest bathtub. At least it was a bathtub that had two taps. The one, the uh, frankly dangerous car, was the Pescarolo 03. So the Pescarolo 03, which uh, if you missed it, good luck to you, um, based on the Aston Martin AMR1, the open-top car um, that uh, embarrassed itself and its and, uh, and its makers at Le Mans, based on that tub, uh, mildly rebuilt as a Pescarolo. Uh, the last car that Henri Pescarolo fielded at the Le Mans 24 hours um, was an utter disaster, scary enough. That uh, Jean Christophe Bouillon, ex Formula One star and longtime LMP1 racer for Henri Pescarello and Rebellion, at that, uh, had a moment where I believe the car got airborne under braking um, uh, into one of the two chicanes on the and walked away midway through the Le Mans meeting. Uh, that finished Pescarello team, that car. That was. Uh, and I don't like to use this term derogatively now, a dog.
0: There we go. Absolute
1: dog, and dangerous at that. That was by far the worse, far worse than uh, the Nissan, without a shadow of a doubt, because um, it just ill-conceived, based on a concept that hadn't worked, and frankly made worse by uh, just about every hand that went onto it. I think that car was redesigned by Nick Perrin? Am I right? I think he did. I think that was part, part of the, but, I mean, all very, very rushed. Uh, Happily, the car doesn't exist anymore. The, uh, the tub was taken back by its owner, Earl Gert. And if, uh, if you're in the UK and get the opportunity to see the Rothko collection, uh, that tub is now back as an Aston Martin AMR 1. So that's the worst.
0: Uh, let's, yeah, uh, those are better than any choices I could come up with. Uh, Jerry Suddath, you said, I'll try this one again, Marshall. I believe I recall you being a fan of the, uh, TV show, Brooklyn nine, nine. If I'm right, I'd like to know which cast members you'd pick. If you had to form a, a DPI team, I would pick Raymond Holt as he's cerebral and would have been a good team leader. Rosa Diaz, as she's just a badass, and Adrian Pimento as he's just crazy in the best way possible. Uh, knowing that this is an international show, there's a lot of people who won't get it. I would just say watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Uh, and I'll just we're going to go with your picks, Jerry, because I think those are pretty awesome. And I could throw in a couple, probably, but we'd just go much farther down the road of obscure. Uh, sh- let's see. Where should we go? Uh, Sam Otis is back. Would you rather live in a world where the Nissan LMP1 or the Delta Wing achieved an overall win at Le Mans? That one Nissan. I would say is pretty easy. Um, yeah, the Nissan, uh, the Delta Wing. I mean, no, the Nissan. All, no, 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 all day the Delta Wing. The wor- no one in the world cares about a Nissan LMP1 win other than racing fans. If that were to happen, Delta Wing wins that Go makes point. international headlines, draws Go much point. wider it's, because I'm smart on occasion when my brain works. Um, hashtag marketing good uh boy do we close with the jacob bame i think so all right I'll, i like that i'm gonna fart this one in your general direction uh theoretically i should wait with this one until the kyalami nine hours finishes jacob we love you man i mean if there, there you are the dark web of questions for us <laughs> these things are so deep These aren't even B-sides of the record. These are like C-side for an old-timey reference. Uh, He says, but I won't. Gentlemen, what was your favorite thing in the sports car racing of the 2010s? Because this decade ends this year, not last year. Yes, I'm one of those. Of course you are. We already knew that. Um, He says the, the thing might be a race, might be a random event in the paddock, might be a piece of news, literally anything. Fire away. All right, Graham, best thing of the 2010s.
1: I can give you three things. Uh, one I've mentioned already, uh, so I won't go on too much about it, which was at its peak, the lmp one hybrid era, I just thought was just spellbinding racing. Moving on from that, oddly, it's two things in GT3 racing. One is the fact that Urbuk 24 uh, hours is still a thing. I think that's against the odds in modern uh, racing. The fact that it's still there, still awesome, still... Scary, scary stuff, raw, old-style racing. The fact we've still got something like that, it's a bit like the Alamante um, that it's still there, I think, is a thing to be treasured. And the final thing is the rise in this decade for the latest classic race we have on the sports car racing calendar, which is the Bathurst 12-hour. Uh, they are the three things for me that are particularly special.
0: Well, what about you, I, I can't add a whole lot more to that. Uh, I'll just go with one. And it is was the many years of sustained awesomeness of GT Lamont in IMSA. Uh, as I wrote many times, have said many times, will continue to tell all those who will listen, uh, boy, when we are talking about Ford factory team versus Corvette factory team versus Porsche factory team versus BMW factory team versus uh, sporadic works vaguely affiliated uh, Ferraris and such when we had four and solid Viper. and the Viper yeah four solid manufacturers running sometimes five ish uh, wow that that IMSA class was deserving of its own video stream because the racing was just that good. Uh, Not only the vehicular differences being really interesting, the driver quality, the balls, right? Easy passes just were never a thing. (laughs) So there was, I can tell you that there are probably a lot of corner workers, of track marshals, who have some pretty awesome memorabilia hanging from the walls in their man or woman (laughs) caves or garages because the amount of uh, GTLM fenders, headlights, whatever, mirrors knocked off, man, it seemed like to get the business done just about anywhere involved some Rg to the bargy. So, yeah, uh, I would say in particular that 2016 through 2019 sprint where we had the four full-times full four timers four full timers running that was amazing for those uh for us prior to that as you mentioned we had the vipers that was good fun we had privateers that did well uh with uh, in particular the walker racing run falcon tire porsche program Mm -hmm. so just when i think of the 2010s that's it uh would also throw in probably uh DPI, towards the end, that that brought us, you know, that really brought some good stuff, too. Um, so, yeah, those things are going to stand out to me as the best parts of the 2010s, more from an American standpoint. Uh, but, yeah, LMP1 at Circuit de la Sarthe, and then the growth, maybe. The last thing to add uh, would be the creation of a true international championship. Uh, so this ILMC spinning into the WEC and... You know, uh, it was pretty cool when we would rock up Graham at yep. Sebring and it would be Audi versus Porsche, for example. Yeah, you know, that that and Le Mans, those were the two big heavyweight fights of the year. And uh, then we were gifted with this, oh, hey, and guess what? <laughs> we're going to actually kind of get everyone together to do this more often and make it a thing. So uh would say all that really. Those are going to jump out as the finer parts of 2010. Uh, Mr. Goodwin, if we don't say goodbye, I am confident I will have less of one of my legs um, (laughs) for the next episode because Rocky has done everything bar take a bite out of my leg to try and get me to go feed him and his sister. So why don't you take us home?
1: Well, uh, hopefully, Jacob, we've got uh, just as good answers for the next decade. And there's every chance that we might, if things kind of come around. But for now, for this week on the weekend in Sports Cars, part of the Marshall Pruitt podcast, uh, I've been Graham Goodwin. He has been Marshall Pruitt. We're going to say thank you, not just to you, the awesome listeners, and in particular those of you who send questions uh, in week after week after week. And thanks again to Ryan Kish for putting those together for us. Uh, We're going to say thank you to Cooper Tyres, to the Justice Brothers, to Bell Helmets USA and to Toronto This has been the Week in Sports Cars. We'll see you next week.